Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. This happens to be show number 23. The last time that we met uh, during show 22, we were talking about real estate investing. And uh, I think we pretty much near the end of that show, we, uh, we were finishing off with something called just the benefits of investing in real estate. And we went through all the various types of benefits of why people want to invest in real estate property. What we're going to be talking about today is something called, um, if you will, I'm sorry, no, we were talking about, yes, talking about uh, investing in real estate uh, or the benefits of it. Now we're going to be talking about something called financing or how do we finance these real estate properties that we're going to uh, be purchasing. One of the things that I want to mention to you uh, that normally when people, an individual first starts investing in any kind of property, real estate property, usually it's a single family home. In most cases, a single family home or a condo or a townhouse, or it might be a piece of land. So it's just one particular, one particular piece of property. Normally the financing for that is fairly straightforward. Uh, you may, for example, if you're just going to, you may have ended up owning that, that house as a, say, a condo or townhouse as an investment because maybe you were living there and uh, you decided that, you know, listen, it's gone up in value in the last few years and maybe it's a good idea to hold on to it and keep it as kind of maybe part of my retirement plan. So that could be one reason why you maybe end up with it. Another reason why is because maybe uh, you've decided that uh, maybe you've taken another job in another city and you need to move out of town. You've tried very hard to turn around and uh, sell the property. You've found it very difficult because maybe the market is soft at that time. And so you've decided to hold on to the property as a rental. And you could have entered into it in a lot of different ways, uh, other ways. You could have had where maybe a friend of yours, uh, maybe they wanted to invest and you wanted to invest and maybe you got together and maybe you decided to uh, you know, buy some house that needed to have some work done on it. One person was very good at uh, finding property and maybe arranging the financing. The other person was uh, very good at, with their hands and painting and doing carpentry work. So you figured if the two of us go together, then we can, you know, it's kind of like a syngenistic or a two plus two is not four but five and, you know, we'll help each other or complement each other to move forward. So there's a lot of ways that we do this. Normally when it comes to that kind of financing, usually there are lots of different sources in the local community. Uh, if it's a single family, anywhere from one to four units, most, almost most of the programs, if you're at least going to live in the unit, can be used. So for example, there are programs that are conventional financing for that. For uh, FHA programs, there's VA programs, there's CalVet programs that can help you if you're talking about one to four units and you're planning on living in the unit itself, one of the units. Another thing is, is that if you're just looking to buy a single family or small unit, you can go to most mortgage companies or banks in town and usually they have programs that will help you finance or be able to acquire that property. In most circumstances, if you're going to buy it as a non-owner occupant or as a rental property, you're normally going to pay a higher interest rate and you may actually correspondingly pay more points depending upon what the market will bear at that time. Now what this chapter is really talking about is what we do when we're buying something that's much larger than that. You know, maybe we're buying an apartment building or a shopping center or uh, 
a, uh, uh, a warehouse. And keep in mind, too, that the way that we're looking at it is not necessarily that you yourself are purchasing it, but that you have decided that you want to be in this business of commercial real estate and help people that are investors to purchase, buy, own, and uh, purchase, sell uh, investment-grade properties. So anyway, in the book, uh, what they do, and I'm going to point out over here on my very friendly uh, document camera, is they talk about some just generalities about finan financing. They don't go into a lot of very long-winded type uh, of different types of programs. They just basically tell you that, uh, talk about different types of sources of financing. They'll say miscellaneous sources of funds for investment properties include things like syndicates, and trusts. By the way, syndicates, and they later on in the book define it, syndicates are normally where two or more people get together and combine their financial resources with the objective in mind of buying uh, and operating an investment type of property. That's what a syndicate normally is. But you can have syndicates, trusts, uh, real estate bonds, debentures, uh, bank administrative pension funds, trust funds, uh, sellers under pressure. Uh, that need to sell the property may decide to carry the financing in the form of uh, a second uh, loan or possibly even carry all the financing. In other words, they may be sick and tired of operating the property and they just are tired of the management headaches and they want to get out of it and you happen to come along and you're kind of like the angel that's going to take it over for them and help them out and they may be willing to carry the financing in that situation. And you may have things like land contracts that we've talked about before. Remember, land contracts are something as a security instrument. CalVet uses them, uh, but people, private parties can use them. The concept is, is that you don't actually grant or deed the property to the individual until after they've paid either the whole property off or some amount or some uh, pre-agreed to amount. Uh, it goes on from there and it says uh, real estate uh, and syndicates and REITs, real estate investment trusts, have proved to be useful devices for higher income investors as well as small investors who pool their resources to develop and operate residential income commercial properties. Seller uh, carryback purchase money trustees and contracts are of sales are more perhaps the most important sources of financing for raw land and many special purpose projects. So basically we're talking about that there are a lot of different sources. The fact is, though, when you go to the local bank, you may find out that that person that you maybe got your loan from a couple, maybe last year or the year before, is not necessarily familiar with this kind of purchasing or this kind of financing. But in most cases, hopefully, they're able to direct you to somebody that handles this kind of lending. And uh, usually they'll give you somebody else's phone number and uh, you'll find out that they're working with other investors in the community to help them buy properties. And then they're more knowledgeable. In other words, these are the people that normally would know what, who the insurance companies are that are looking to make loans on real estate properties. They're looking at uh, who are the pension plans, the uh, profit sharing plans. You know, who are these organizations that are looking to help people purchase properties? And so anyway, they would know more about that. A lot of times we call these people loan correspondents if they're working uh, specifically for uh, like insurance companies. So anyway, getting to know who these people are if, you're, if you decide that this is the area you want to focus in is really kind of important. Uh, they do talk a little bit about in here about the concept that, uh, and I'll see if I can pull this up here for a minute. They do talk about the fact of just trying to distinguish that some of the institutions that maybe you're used to don't necessarily 
uh, get involved with very large properties. And when we say large properties, we're talking about like apartment houses, small shopping centers, things like this, different types of real property. But what they're basically saying is that savings banks most of the time are the ones that are lending or making most of their money, if you will, by lending on single-family homes or possibly from one to four units if they're uh, you know, small investment properties, but not the larger ones. Commercial savings banks normally usually make most of their money by lending money to businesses that are using that money for short-term use to do things like uh, uh, buy and hold inventory, maybe meet uh, payroll uh, requirements, uh, provide uh, lines of credit for the business to operate. So that's usually what commercial banks are involved in. Usually they do, may do things like equity lines of credit, but they're not very much into lending on large types of properties. Life insurance companies, uh, life insurance companies have tons of money and they're really looking for large, really high quality projects. So a life insurance company, for example, would have the money in its accounts to buy a building for, you know, three, uh, you know, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million dollars on up. And what they're looking for is they're usually looking for, as Donald Trump would call it, trophy properties. They want really high quality really um, excellent uh, locations for their buildings where there's a really good solid return on their investment that they have and there's really not a lot of problems associated with it. The reason why they want that is because they're taking the money that they've been getting in the form of premiums from policyholders and they need to make sure that they invest that money and they don't do they don't take a great big risk on it because what they're looking for is that they need to put it in a reasonable amount of return but someday they're going to have to have that money available for to pay for example uh, the death benefit for somebody from a, that holds a life insurance policy so they're looking for really good high quality properties and there are a lot of different ways that they may invest they may just lend the money out. They may be looking for what we call an equity uh, participation where maybe they want to have, they'll lend you some money, they'll charge you an interest rate, and maybe they want to have some portion of the possibility that the property is going to go up in value. So there's a lot of different financing arrangements that they may very well make. And you also may find out that on even really large properties uh, or a number of properties, they may have where the banks will go together as a syndicate of, of form to, to maybe pool their money to help you buy those properties. So anyway, there's a lot of that that if you're interested in that, you would need to go to know who those people happen to be. Anyway, moving on from there, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your role in the investment process. And they basically, we talked about it a little time, a little bit before. Uh, and the first thing is, is, and I guess probably the easiest way that I can explain this is that if you go to any of the large brokerages in town that are, uh, like Marcus Melchamp or, uh, or a C.B. Ellis or any of the large uh, institutions in town that are dealing in commercial property, and you walk in there, you're going to find out that those real estate brokers and agents are extremely knowledgeable about all the properties that are in Sacramento. They even have staffs of people that do research. So basically they would know, you're going to find out that part of the process of getting into the commercial type of business is not that you know about one apartment complex, but if that's your chosen profession, you're probably going to be continuously gathering data about the community and finding out if you're going to specialize in apartments where every single solitary apartment house is located, who owns the property, 
what the general plan is, the, in other words, the county or the city plan for the area, in other words, where can they build new apartment complexes. Uh, you'll be tracking information such as things like what are the rental rates, what are the vacancy factors. You'll be doing all of that, and you'll find if you sit down with those agents, they know all of that because what's happening is they're getting a phone call from maybe somebody, some large uh, investor out of town that's coming to Sacramento and is looking to buy apartment buildings, and they want to be talking to somebody that really knows what they're doing. You'll find out within these commercial brokerages that usually you'll have somebody that maybe specializes in just land. Somebody else specializes in things such as apartment buildings or residential apartment buildings. You'll have somebody else that will specialize in maybe office buildings, somebody else shopping centers. You'll have people that may uh, actually not only be looking at helping people acquire the property, but also have their practice involve things like leasing property. So when a company comes to town, such as a shoe store, and they're looking for space to open up a retail location, they go to those large companies and, and say, you know, where is the retail space in town? That agent is able to explain where it is. They know the entire community. They know what pro, uh, they know what the rents are, uh, the leases, rent, uh, the lease amounts of leases are for those different types of uh, of retail areas happen to be. What the vacancy factors are, what the traffic is. They know how many cars pass by the place every day. So extremely knowledgeable people. And those investors are looking at those agents and brokers as a source of knowledge in the local community to help them so that they can pick the right location. So that's what, where you really want to be. That's, that's, that's this, the level that you need to operate at if you really want to take this seriously as part of the area you want to focus on. So anyway, uh, when you're talking about how do you get to know these people, it's just a lot of it is by contacting. Uh, may, you may very well be, if you're working with an agent in, uh, in the office that's going to be specializing in this, you may very well, even if you're in a small residential office, you may find out that you there's somebody that has the same interest that you basically have, and maybe they get an apartment house or they get a small strip center or whatever it happens to be. And maybe your, your starting point at this, maybe you've been selling residential property, but your starting point into this is to maybe help that person sell that property. So you may even go and say, say to them, listen, I'll, how about if we go together and I'll put the ads in the paper so we can attract some people that are looking to purchase this kind of property. And that's basically where you start. You start with doing something like that. Uh, you know, putting the ad in the paper, starting to market the property, the phone rings, people will call you, say, I'm looking, you know, to buy apartment houses. You're getting some information from them. You're helping to qualify them. Once you get that information, you ask them, is it okay if I call you back, if I find something? And then you just keep in contact. I mean, you keep building this list of people that are looking for properties that you can help out. So uh, that's one of the ways. The other way is, is that you can always go to one of the title insurance companies, like, for example, fi uh, Financial Title, which has been uh, heavily involved in our program. You can go to them and, and, for example, ask them if they can assist you in providing maybe a list of the people that own apartments in a specific area. And then that way, once you have the names and the contact information, you could send out a letter and, and introduce yourself. And keep in mind that this is not like... You know, you're going to send out 100 letters and all of a sudden two people are going to respond and buy an apartment house. You're kind of building a relationship with these people. You're keeping them informed. You may be sending them information about what's going on in the Sacramento community, what the houses are selling for, 
where new uh, industries are opening up, all that kind of information. You just start building that relationship. And it's kind of funny, all of a sudden one day the phone will ring and somebody will ask you if you do that enough. You know, is there some way uh, I'm thinking about selling my apartment house? Could you come over here just like you would a single family home and give me an idea of what you think it would sell for? And that could be your first opportunity in getting your own listing on a property, if you will. But it takes that tenacious, that uh, keep after it kind of a thing with the idea in mind that you're building a long-term relationship. The next thing uh, you're going to take a look at when you're getting ready to list a property for sale or you get the listing is you're going to need some information on the property and you're going to find out that you may very well be asking questions of the owner and looking at documents that maybe you never do really look at when you're looking at a single family home and it gives you an idea here of some of the things that you would be doing with the owner of the property when you gather information the first thing you probably would be doing is touring the property taking a look and remember this could be a very large piece of property or a large number of uh, apartment units all in different levels of repair or needs of repair so the first thing you're going to be looking at is, is what 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 condition are they in and that means not only the apartments themselves but also the common areas such as the pool the clubhouses the tennis courts all that stuff are what needed repairs what things need to be done is the roof in good condition when was the last time it was replaced uh, how many roof repairs have been done all those things that are important as far as repairs uh, you want to know what the condition of the units are of course uh, the quality of the units and quality I would mean you know uh, you know what kind of amenities do they provide are they basic apartments you know where they maybe have a stove or refrigerator and a, and, a, and a sink or do they have some additional amenities such as fireplaces that uh, one of the big things they do in apartments now is they have a par uh, fireplaces that you you know you go in flip the switch on and the fireplace turns on and it, it's run through um, natural gas does it have uh, uh, surround sound and uh, for the TV does it have cable uh, available another big thing is, is what kind of um, internet access does it have you'll see a lot of apartment houses now that are listing where they have uh, high-speed internet connections you also see that on uh, office buildings too you know people are concerned hey I need to get on the internet to do work or do business or do my bit do whatever do you, what kinds of capabilities do you have you're gonna want to take a look at rent schedules too and rent schedules are talking about the thing, you know, every single apartment that this place has is going to have like unit number one, unit number two, unit number three. You're going to want to know, you know, exactly how much rent is being derived from that unit. So you may have, for example, on an apartment complex, you may have studio apartments, which means there's really no bedroom. There's kind of like a common area where you maybe have some cooking facilities but you don't really have let's say a separate bedroom that's a studio it sounds fancy but it's a really you know it's a simple apartment if you will and then you may have a single uh, uh, one bedroom apartment two bedroom apartment three bedroom apartment and each one of those units is probably going to have a different rental amount that they're going to charge so you're going to want to know what that is and you also want to know why do they charge different uh, rents uh, they may find out that, for example, maybe it's, uh, they pay uh, the people that live closer to the pool pay more in rent, or the people that are on the other side of the apartment complex away from the highway where there's less noise pay less rent. So you need to know what those particular characteristics are. Some of the other things I would be looking for is how much the rent is. I would want to know um, 
how long the people have lived there. Is the le uh, you know is everybody in there a really solid lease that's been in there for a number of years, or do I have a fairly high turnover rate where people are coming in, staying there a couple months, and moving back out again? So I want to know all of that, and I'd like to know it on unit by unit basis. What's going on? Uh, again, going back to here, whatever lease terms that may be there, am I month to month with the people, or am I lease uh, lease? Again, how long they've been there? Very, very important. Vacancy factors. Vacancy factors, if we're talking about apartment houses, usually in the Sacramento, usually we throw these numbers around and say vacancy factors are usually about 4 to 5 percent. Uh, somewhere along the line, somebody came up with that as a rule of thumb. Uh, but basically, uh, what you really need to do is to know, if you take an entire year, how long are apart, how, how is there a period of time in which there are apartments that are not being rented out. So that could be for a number of reasons. You may find out that the reason why the apartment wasn't rented out immediately when the other person moved out was because it needed a lot of repairs. Or you could find out that, hey, the vacancy factor is higher because the properties are starting to fall, if you will, into some form of disrepair. Another thing that could happen is that you could be in an area in which uh, maybe for years and years and years the apartments rented out, there was no problem, then all of a sudden somebody built a brand new apartment complex and they offered all sorts of incentives and the minute that your tenants or this, this property's tenants' lease expired, they were going over there because maybe the pre people were offering them one or two months free rent and that apartment complex rents for the same amount and they have a swimming pool and a tennis court so you need to know what, what's going on there and why it's vacant. Um, and then you need to just look at a, an evaluation of the income and expenses. And again, you want to look at things like where is the money coming from? Uh, where is the rent money coming from? Is it just apartments? Are there profit centers such as laundromats, vending machines? You know, you know where is all the money coming from? Is there some other place that fees are coming in? As in a short example, like if you go to a lot of hotels, uh, and you stay at the hotel, you'll find out that you go in, you, you stay there, and then they're going to, if you want movies, you can watch the movies in your room, but you're going to pay a fee for that. So that's a profit center. Or if you want to use their internet, that's a profit center. They're going to charge you for that. And that's money that, in fact, up until uh, I think the cell phones more or less kind of put the kibosh on this, but a lot of uh, hotels were charging a fortune f to use the phone, even for local or for toll-free numbers. You were still paying money. So they were looking at ways of generating income from that. So you need to know what that is. Um, so anyway, getting the listing, they do talk about things such as investment planning and counseling. So you'll be working with them on, on possibly building a relationship. Remember, you're, more, you're really working very heavily into building a relationship with these people. Not like, say, selling somebody a house and moving on. What you want to do is hopefully they buy a property from you, and then because you've helped them really get a nice property, they've made a, they're making a lot of money on it or a good amount of money or a reasonable rate of return on it, and they, they really like you that the next time that they're looking to buy something, they come back to you or when they get ready to sell it. So you're building this relationship, and getting to know them is very important. Um, Next thing that they talk about in here, and uh, let me see if I can go down through here. I think we're going to get to the sheet here in a minute. As they start talking about residential income properties. Now, the reason why they use this residential income properties is because most of us are familiar with that. But the same concepts apply to office buildings, shopping centers, or whatever. You apply the same 
concept, the same knowledge. You know, if it's an office building, you're looking at what the office space is, who leases from you, them, how much they pay per month. So uh, if it's a shopping center, you're looking at the same thing, how much money, you know, how much floor space is rented or leased, how much they pay per month. Typically in, in uh, retail space, you also have what they call percentage leases. So there's a certain amount of, like for, for uh, as an example, maybe a flat fee that they pay per month, and then they provide to you as a landlord their statements showing how much they earned in, uh, in sales. And then they pay you a percentage of those sales. And the reason why they do that is because that's sort of like an incentive for you as the landlord to market that shopping center. In other words, to make sure it's well lit, it's well taken care of, maybe have things that draw the crowds in. Uh, that's why they do things like that. Anyway, so what I want to do is probably the thing that I want to go over is this sheet right here, which is talking about what you would see as a standard and this by no means, what you're going to find out is, is that if you contacted most commercial brokerages in town, they would probably have something sometimes referred to as maybe a one sheet uh, or something that would give the general information about the property. Usually on one side will be a photograph or say maybe a series of photographs. And on the other side would be some basic information about the property. They're not going to provide in this literature, if you will, all of their financial statements and everything else that they're doing because that's actually private information. They're not going to show that to people that are looking to buy until they make sure that this person or this organization is very serious about buying this property. So they're not going to be distributing all that financial information out to everybody, but they're going to give you some sort of an idea on what this happens to be. So up at the top, usually you'll see something like presented by whoever the name of the real estate company is, their address and their phone number. Uh, the improvement, so it's telling you that this is a four-unit apartment building, so this would be like the McCune fourplexes maybe. The address of the property in the city that it's located. This is telling you uh, the blocks that it's located on. Down here below is giving you the sales representative, so this would in this case be you. And again, you may have a lot more contact information. You may have your cell phone on there, your fax number on there, your home phone number, all the different ways people can get a hold of you, your email address, uh, your website, on and on. Uh, showing instructions, what you're going to do is you're going to call this person. Now, without looking at this, uh, I'm assuming that this is probably the man. Yes, it is. It's the manager. So what's going to happen is this, this person here, Topic, is, is, the, is the manager. So they have a little circle down here. Is this person an owner, a manager, or a tenant? Uh, and this person's the one that when you call them up to make the arrangements to go by and see the property, they're the ones that will be there and show you the units. And again, you have to kind of keep in mind that, um, that uh, they're going to make darn sure that you're serious about buying it. They're not going to want to inconvenience all the tenants in, in, in the apartment complex or in the building just for you to kind of cruise through there and see what's going on. Then they give you their phone number. If there's any special features about it, they may put them in here, just like one number, you know, like if it had a swimming pool or it had, you know, uh, dish TV or it had high-speed Internet connection or something else that was going to come with it or maybe it had... Uh, something you want to emphasize like our all remodeled, brand new paint, brand new carpets, anything that would be as an incentive to have people be uh, more interested in it. 
Down below here, and I'm going to kind of zoom out here a little bit, move over. Well, actually, I'm going to move up here. Okay, they're giving you some basic information here. They're giving you a lot size, 90 by 150. Now, again, where can you get that information from? You can get it from the title insurance company or the, or the county planning department where it'll tell you what the length and the width of the lot is. You'll want to actually get what we call a plot plan or a parcel map whatever they or a subdivision map, whatever it is that shows the dimensions of the property, that's very important. In other words, when you're taking the listing, you need to know that because maybe a lot of times the owner themselves, I mean, if you ask me now exactly, tell me for sure exactly the dimensions of your lot, I, I could probably say, well, I think it's about this size, but I'm going to have to pull the documents out to take a look and see exactly what it is. You're going to want to know what the zoning is. And the zoning you can get off of the, uh, from the, uh, usually from information you'll get from the title company, but I would highly recommend that if you're going to put down anything about zoning, make sure that you put it down and put down where you got it from. Say zoning as per, and then say, you know, county records or county planning department or whatever. You're going to put down the age. This happens to be 11 years, so age means how long it's been around since it was constructed. This is talking about the construction, which is stucco. Lath and stucco, which is going to be talking about the outside structure is made out of stu uh, stucco. It has no elevator. What style it is is English Tudor. Down here, it's telling you that it's giving you a quick legal description that it's lot 14. I'm thinking that they built a lot of these in one place is what they did, a lot of fourplexes. It's giving you the number of stalls that you have. That becomes to, important to people a lot of times. In other words, if I have four units, are there, you know, does, you know, does the, does the, where are the tenants going to park? Or do they all have to park in the street? Or, you know, what's basic, or does only one car, you know, a place for one car or two cars, or what's going on? This tells me how many stories it is, whether it has sewer, it has heat, okay, it has air conditioning. Down below, it tells me some information about the loan. It has a first loan of $225,000. It gives me a payment. It gives me an interest rate. Uh, and it tells me, uh, apparently from this, originally 25 years. It has 14 years to go. So in other words, I guess the loan was for 25 years. And uh, it's, so they, with 14, I take the 25 from the 14, means that they've been paying it. So that probably, when I do the math real quick, that's the original loan on the property because the property is 11 years old. That's just quick math. Tells me who the lender is, that there, that there is no lockbox. Usually lockboxes are associated with a single-family dwelling, but on something like this, you couldn't go around and throw lockboxes on everybody's apartment complex. You couldn't do that, or apartment unit. This is telling me that I have a second loan here. It tells me what the payments are, the interest rate is, when it's due. There's no acceleration clause. It tells me that the pri party is a private party, and then that there's no other loans. Uh, over here on the right-hand side, it says investment information is based on the first loan, a payment of $3,000 a month. Okay, so it's giving me that information. Uh, it says that the seller will carry uh, loans. Okay, so in other words, if you sell it, the, the seller may carry a loan back on, on their equity or some portion of their equity. Down below, it gives you the schedule of income. So it's telling you that it has four units. It has a three-bedroom, two-bath that they rent for $15.90 a month, a two-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath for $14.10, a two-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath for $14.10, and a three-bedroom, two-bath for $15.90. So it's giving me what, I, you know, what they're renting it from. Also down the bottom is showing what my total gross monthly income is going to be by adding all of those figures up. <coughs> On the right-hand side is giving me some expenses. 
So it's saying projected operating expenses. It's telling me what my taxes are going to be. Um, what I don't know from this is they're telling me it's projected operating expenses. So I don't know whether they're looking at the fact that the property may be reassessed based on the fact of it's going to be sold. But it's giving me the taxes, the insurance, any license fees I have. Apparently, they're paying for the water. They have some electricity they're paying for. It doesn't mean all the units. It means there must be some kind of an electric something going on there. It might be for some equipment they're running. They have gas, management. There's some management fees involved, trash. Uh, they're paying for a gardener. They're paying for a total estimated of maintenance of $7,200. So then they give me the total. And then over here is giving me the investment information. It's telling me, okay, I have a price of 488000 This is the first loan. This is the down payment they want. This is the scheduled income. This is the vacancy factor. They're estimating 2% vacancy factor. So that means 2% of the income I won't receive because the building's going to be vacant for whatever reason. I don't know why. <clears throat> People moving out, times that I have to paint. Maybe it has to be on the market for a couple weeks to rent it out. I don't know. But it's going to be vacant for 2% of the time. And based on that, I'm going to lose some money. Gross operating income, that's this, all of this, okay. Projected operating expenses, net income, loan payments, uh, gross spendable. They're giving me some spendable money I'm going to be done. Furniture reserve, apparently they must be renting these things out with furniture in them. Uh, carpet reserve, they do have some money set aside for carpets. That's not a heck of a lot of money, unless those apartments are tiny. Um, so anyway, it's giving me all of these figures down here, okay? And uh, let me see. I think I pretty much have covered that entire sheet. So basically, that's what you're going to be getting uh, whenever I sometimes call them a one sheet. You know, there's a lot of different names for them, but basically, this is just enough information that they can mail to people that are interested. So in other words, when somebody calls up on the phone and says, Hi, my name is Jim Smith. I saw your ad in the Sacramento Bee <clears throat> for that fourplex that's for sale. Could you send me some information on it? So this would be something that I would include in the letter that I would send back to them, uh, probably also a, uh, a cover letter that would talk about it. I could also, by the way, just so that you know, you could also turn around and take this information and put it, if you will, uh, send it to them via email. You know, you may have people that are looking for property that are investors that are out of the community, and you're going to send something to them via email. So you could take this and uh, attach it as a document for an email. That's a very common way of doing things nowadays. Or maybe even put it up on a website. Who knows? Um, so anyway, yeah, you have a question back there? Yeah. Yes. So the projected total return—that's what he's the profit that he's going to make for let me, that year. Let me let me take a look at the sheet itself and see what he's doing. Okay. Um, okay. Projected total return. Okay. That uh, you know, without doing the math, without doing the math, this is just talking about return money coming back to him is what it is. But I'd have to do all the math here and see how he basically came up with it. But that's basically what they're saying. They're giving you a percent down here of what that earning is in relation to the sales price, okay? And then they're giving you the spendable. They're giving you a rate on that. They're telling you what it earns with that amount of down payment and then the purchase price. They're just giving you some factors that they're figuring out, okay? And in the book, they talk about how I think um, in here, let me see if I have some examples 
for example, starting, um, if you want to know, I'll just go down these really quickly because that, that's a good question. You know, I mean, how, how, what does that really mean? Um, on this page right here, they, have, they take the income property that we're talking about, and then they walk you through the process and what this stuff means. So they're saying, okay, well, they had a statement in here that was potential gross income. So they define what that happens to be. So they're saying, okay, potential gross income is the total income that the property is capable of producing at full occupancy without any deductions for expenses. For example, if the rental uh, rate for a two-bedroom unit is $14.10 per month and an apartment has 10 two-bedroom units, you would have a total potential income of $14,100 per year, and it tells you the formula of how you calculate it. So everything that they have in that financial statement, they're giving you an example of how it's calculated. Um, the uh, next thing is when they use the term effective gross income. Oh, wait a minute. Before we go any further, they have a thing in here called vacancy factor. And so people will not understand, in some cases, what a vacancy factor is. Okay, And so they'll go through. Vacancy factor just essentially means that, hey, if I had that effective gross income, there's going to be a period of time that for whatever reason beyond my control, some of those properties are going to sit there without somebody in them paying rent that particular day. That could be for a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever. So what they're doing here is they give me an example on how I could do this. So they say vacancies can be calculated in one of three ways. You can take the actual current vacancy as shown by the records. So in other words, you go through and you look at all the records that you've had for the last number of years and how long certain apartments set vacant. And from that, you can calculate the vacancy uh, financially. So you can say this is based on the financial statements that I have. Two, an averaging percent of all historical vacancies for the subject property. So you just go back and you come up with a, uh, an average. Or three, by checking out vacancy for comparable properties in the area. Now. That, that does not necessarily, I mean, if you say for the area it's 5%, that might be okay, but you may find that your building is 10%, and the reason why it's 10% is it needs a lot of work. Or you could find that it's 1%, and the reason why it's 1% is because the manager has done a wonderful job of screening tenants, has taken excellent care of the building, the current owner takes care of everything that goes wrong. I mean, if, a, a, if anything goes wrong, they're there Johnny on the spot to fix it. And when they get ready to rent something out, they've got a long waiting list of people that are looking to rent because the property has such an excellent reputation. So you have to look at what you're really quoting. Very, very important. But every one of these in here, you know, your effective gross income is listed here. This is your net operating income. So what you, what you really need to do is take a look at what that item is and then read how that's calculated, and then that helps. Okay. They also talk about over here something called fixed or operating expenses. And probably uh, just so that you know how this works, this is more like an accounting type thing, which is always important. You're going to find out you're going to be doing more accounting than you ever did in your entire life. But operating expenses are ongoing expenses that are necessary to maintain the flow of income from the property. For appraisal purposes, operating expenses fall into one of three categories, fixed. Fixed means I don't care if the building is vacant or it's fully occupied, I have that expense. A fixed expense would be something like insurance. Uh, it would be the mortgage payment. It would be the property taxes. That's fixed. Those people don't care how much money you earn, they still want to get paid. Okay. 
uh, variable expenses would be expenses that are going to be associated with how many units you rent out. So for example, as a simple example, if you have agreed to pay the water bill for all of the units and uh, your water bill is going to be higher if all of the units are rented versus if half the units are rented. So you can almost sit there and say for every, you could actually calculate it out for every rental unit you have, you know, you can figure out proportionally how much of that bill is based on each unit being rented. So you may have uh, 10 units, your water bill runs, I don't know, $10,000, not $10,000 a year, say $1,000 a year, and you say, okay, each one of those units is going to cost me $100 per year. So if I have one unit that's not in production, that's less money. That's a variable expense. And then I have reserves for replacements. Reserves for replacements means money that I have set aside with the idea in mind that I know that I'm going to have to replace that at some future date. Carpeting would be a good example. And it's so that I don't all of a sudden find out and go, oh, my goodness, I've got to replace the carpeting in unit number five, you know, and that's going to cost me $3,000, and I don't have $3,000. You want to be able to put, have some money set aside, you know, for that kind of work that needs to be done, things like roofing. You know, all of a sudden, if the building needs a new roof, for whatever reason, that can be a huge expense that you have to put out. So what you should be doing, if you want to be prudent, now, you don't have to be prudent, you just be wild, but if you want to be prudent, you should be taking a certain amount of that money that you earn and putting it to the side in a reserve so when the roof does require to be replaced or, uh, uh, or the heating system or whatever, you've got the money available. Because you've been telling, by the way, you've been telling the Internal Revenue Service all these years that you're taking a certain amount of expenses and accounting for it in a way of a depreciation. And you don't want to be saying, oh, well, that's no problem. I take that off, that excess stuff off my ordinary income. Well, guess what? Eventually, someday, those things need to be actually fixed. So you need to have some money put aside for that. So that's what these items are. So they're giving you a definition down here of fixed expenses, variable expenses, and then reserves, which is very, very important that one knows what those happen to be. After that... They're getting you, let me see, they're giving you down here, the next thing is they're just giving you some more definitions. They're giving you something called a, a um, oh, let me see here, uh, real estate. Okay. They're just giving you a definition here of what they mean by a gross multiplier. Okay. And what it is is that we sometimes, when we're doing appraisal or we're trying to talk about the value of a property, we will come up with some sort of a factor, okay, and we'll talk about that. So we, all they're trying to do here is introduce you to the fact that you're going to hear something that the property sells for eight times gross or nine times gross or ten times gross or whatever. So they're just saying real estate agents often refer to gross income multiplier as the times gross uh, is simply the proposed selling price divided by the scheduled income, okay, with a multiple use to ballpark a figure or to weigh the prospective value of the investment. So they're giving you an example. They say, if the subject property has potential income of $108,000 per year, the appraiser has determined that the annual potential gross multiplier for that type of property is 11. The value of the property, therefore, is estimated to be whatever is estimated to be take 108,000 times 11, and then that's the value of the property. It's just so you know what that is. 
You may get all done with that in the book. They use some examples here that you know could be on the high, way on the high side or way on the low side. It's just a way that you can talk about things. Same thing when they talk about capitalization of net income. They'll come up with a factor called the capitalization rate. And this goes through and explains what that is, but it basically says is that your capitalization rate is based on the following. You take the net operating income, and you need to go back and make sure you understand what net operating income is. Okay, you know, in other words, what did you take from the gross income in order to end up with the net operating income? Divide that by the sales price, and then that'll give you what we call a capitalization rate. Okay, and a capitalization rate in its simplest form is the fact of how much do I have to invest my money at in order to not only get a decent interest rate return but also a return of my capital considering the value of the asset is going down. Okay? Now, just stay with that. That's what a capitalization rate is, and we could spend hours talking about how to calculate that, but a capital, that's what a capitalization rate is. It's taking whatever I think my rate of return should be on it, also based on the fact that every year that goes by, the value of that asset goes down. And what gets confusing with people with real estate is they say, wait a minute, real estate doesn't go down, and value goes up. Well, in reality, the value of that building does go down because it starts to wear away. There's things, the, build, the, the roof is worth less, the furniture in it is worth less, so we have, to ha we have to account for that. So that's part of the capitalization rate. So it's another term we use. And um, then they give you an example of how you would figure, if you, ha if you knew what the net operating income was and you knew what the capitalization rate was, which is something that um, somebody would have helped you calculate, this is how you can figure out what the sales price is. Okay, so in other words, you take the, the net operating income divided by the capitalization rate and it gives you a sales price. Okay, after that they talk about a few other things that you need to really look at and this is again why those large companies or those people that are in the business spend a lot of time collecting data. You're going to really need to be able to analyze the rental market. You need to know what the market is. Is the rental market, you know, for whatever kind of property. I mean, in Sacramento, our vacancy factors for apartments tend to be on fairly the low size. We, we always seem to be always running behind um, trying to catch up with building enough units. Also, there are, have been in the past, in the past couple of years, a number of apartment units that have been converted or gone through conversions to condominiums. There's a big project out in Folsom has done that. But if you're in commercial and you're talking about retail, you can go down the street and you can take a look at places near Arden, Arden Fair Shopping Center where we have, uh, at least currently right now, there are a number of buildings that are sitting there that are vacant, you know, that were there for a long period of time. There was good guys. There was a number of different buildings that were there that are vacant now. So the vacancy factor for that area is fairly high. Now, that may turn around in, in six months or a year, but you need to know what the market is. And who's going to rent? Who's looking to move into the community to rent? Very, very important. Okay. Um, and then it gets things that, um, just moving through this quickly, you're going to look at other factors. Some of these things at the time don't make any sense to anybody. And then all of a sudden it comes back and we start to see it happening. For example, population analysis. Population analysis is, for example, are we in the Sacramento community? Uh, how old is the population or in a certain community? Are people that are living there getting older? 
if they're getting older, then they have certain needs and desires. There are a lot of the population that are my age, what we commonly call the baby boomers, that are getting older, that are doing other things. They're moving to retirement communities. They're selling the big houses, moving to the smaller houses. They're more interested in things like, especially when they get into retirement, like leisure, leisure facilities. So you may find out, like, for example, if you have a... Uh, uh, a company may come in and lease some space to put a gym in the area. And the reason why they're doing a gym is because, guess what, there's a large portion of the uh, retired population that is looking for activities to do during the day, and maybe they can f meet those particular needs. So you have to look at what's going on in the population. And you can start to predict some of those things just by looking at what the birth statistics are now and what's happening in the future, okay? You know, like, are people typically having, you know, in the, in the 50s, in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s, a lot of people that got married, uh, and a lot of us came from families where there wasn't just this, uh, two kids, you know, just, you know, where we had a, a mother and dad and turned around and they had two kids. We came from families that had four, five, six, nine, ten kids. Now it's gone the other way around. A lot of the people in our age group are doing the opposite. We maybe have one child or maybe no children. So you look at those trends, what, what society as a whole is thinking about. Um, anyway, so we'll move on from there. Um, you're looking for, you're just looking at like, you're going to find yourself collecting a lot of different data. You know, your projected demand for, for multiple units. In other words, is there more of a demand for rental properties? Okay. Or less of a demand, more of a demand for shopping centers. Uh, you'll see things like, for example, in hotels and motels. Uh, are there more of a demand for hotel units now? Uh, you know, like we have a large convention center downtown Sacramento, which uh, I think there was something on the news not too long ago that basically said that uh, that, that convention center is booking out a lot of people that are going to be visitors visiting there, not just now, but in, in the next year or two. And those people are actually starting to consume up or use up all the hotel rooms downtown. So we would maybe look at that and say, hmm, maybe we need to have more hotels in that area. So we would be looking at things like that. Um, we want to look at things such as uh, rent-to-income ratios. You know, how much, how much money is people actually spending uh, of the money that they earn on rent? Uh, are they, you know, typically they spend a higher amount. But, you know, if we build a very expensive apartment complex, uh, and the people that live in the area don't make enough money to be able to afford to live there, then those buildings are going to sit there vacant. So we need to know where the demand happens to be. Is it in the lower, middle, or higher income area? Um, so that's current rental ranges, and what is the current vacancy factors that we have? So we want to look at all that stuff, and that's, again, with, the, with uh, the, uh, all of the large, very knowledgeable real estate agents and brokers do in this community. Rent control is one thing that uh, we talk about in other classes, but basically what that is is I think the last time I looked at this, there are about 15 communities in the California area, 15. And when I say communities, I mean some of those could be a city or they could be a small town, but there are about 15 communities. San Francisco happens to be one of them that has rent control. And just a real quick and dirty thing about what rent control is is, is that the people that normally are renting are because there's a lack of supply, a lack of places for people to live. So there's a couple things that are going on. Number one, there's a demand for people to work, live in the area because there's jobs. So because there's jobs, people move to the area because there's a lack of supply of apartment units for them to live in. 
what they do is that the landlord will turn around because there's competition, okay, a large demand, a lack of supply, will, the people will bid the price of the apartments up. What ends up happening, if it keeps going up higher and higher and higher, it ends up starting to exclude people at the lower end that can afford to live there. So what happens is, is that these people will typically get together, it's a political decision, and they'll say, you know what, we've got to stop and we've got to put a lid on this. We've, and they look at it in the beginning as a temporary band-aid thing. You know, in other words, what the real fix for it is that they need more rental units, but they don't have enough. So they say, okay, nobody, we, nobody can charge more than $1,000 a month for rent. And that fixes it. The problem is, is that unless they do something to get more rental property going, then what's going to end up happening is those landlords that own property in that area are going to not be able to, they're going to be earning less money on their investment because, you know, those buildings are getting older, they're having to make repairs, they're not getting enough income coming in. And so they're going to start, those landlords will just start to decide, you know, listen, if I, if I have a place where, where I can't raise the rent, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go to some other community and I'll build apartments there. The thing to keep in mind also, too, is that's a very simplistic approach to it. Rental, rent control is a fairly complex subject. It's administered in different communities in different ways. In some communities, there's extremely tight rent controls, a very formal process, a very strict process. In other ones, it's a very easy, it's not as strict. You can't say, based on one area, how it's going to work in another area. What you need to do is, if you're a commercial, uh, in commercial real estate and you're going to specialize in something like apartment complexes, you need to find out what those processes are in the community where you live. That's what's important. And what they're doing to maybe help mitigate the process. Is there more apartment units coming online? Uh, typically, in a lot of those areas where this goes on for a long period of time, one of the factors that causes it to happen is there's no place to put apartments. In other words, they have to actually start to tear down existing structures, uh, remove. So they may have a fairly, maybe you have an apartment complex that was maybe only uh, one floor and it took up a whole block. And they maybe have to go in there and tear down the entire apartment complex and then build a new one with maybe 10 or 15 floors, and that's going to take some time because there's no, they, it's, there's no other space. There's no other ground to put that in. So that could be a factor that's affecting it. Um, so we're pretty close to the end um, of this. Um, they do talk in the end about different kinds of options of purchasing and owning properties. They, one they talk about is a syndication. A syndication is just basically... Uh, it's, if you will, it's a group of people that come together with the idea in mind that they have the same sort of financial objectives. They want to pool their money to uh, purchase, maintain, develop, build, whatever the properties happen to be. Sometimes it might be money. Sometimes they may be, bring expertise to the table. You know, somebody may say, listen, I'm a real estate agent. I'm very good at marketing property, finding a marketing property. The other person may say that I'm a builder and I'm very good at constructing property. So, you know, you're talking about that, right? Um, they do talk about the different brokerage opportunities that you may have. Uh, this is mainly talking about the area of syndication, though. Uh, the concept here is, is that you would be in the process, if you were going to be where you would be the syndicator. In other words, instead of you, this is sort of like the Donald Trump type thing, what he does. He doesn't necessarily run around and find properties for people to buy and sell. What he does is he turns around and looks at it and says, you know what, 
we need to have an office, more office space in Manhattan or in Las Vegas or someplace in California. What he does is he says there's a need. I've had my people, as the way he always says, study the, the area and have determined that there's a need for this. What he may very well then do is ask some agents that he knows to go out and find or locate some of the types of those properties. What he will do then, or his people as he likes to refer to it, will go out and find people that want to invest in those kinds of properties. So maybe those people are the type that want to put their money together to maybe do the construction of a new office building. And what he will earn his income on will be on maybe on part on the acquisition of the property. In other words, he's going to be in the management capacity. He's going to be involved in the acquisition of it, the construction of it, the management of it, uh, of the property. Okay, so he's going to be involved in all of those phases, and the way that he does this is, is by putting these groups together. That's what he does, and it's a syndicate is what they do. And people look to him because it's his level of expertise that makes this happen. Okay, that's what he's selling. He's selling his knowledge and his experience and his name, if you will, to make that happen. That's why it works. They also talk about different forms of legal own organization or uh, operations uh, for a syndicate. They talk about things such as limited partnerships, and again, this is uh, uh, they go through a, a little list here of what a limited partnership is. So you could be where you're putting a limited partnership together where maybe it has one general partner, and then the other people are limited, and they put in a certain amount of money. They're limited in the amount of money they put in. They're limited on the amount of liability that they have. And but usually those people don't want to be involved in the day-to-day -day operations. They just want to put their money in and let somebody else take care of it. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't want to do that. They've just have chosen to invest in real estate because they think it's going to make more money than the stock market or the bond market is. So it talks here about the advantages of that, which you can look at. Okay. Also, they talk about a general partnership. A general partnership would be, would be where you basically have yourself and one other person that are going to go together or a couple people are going to go together and own it. Okay? The problem with that is, is that you're, you're, the responsibility for that is on, is on uh, everybody. Um, and then finally, uh, corporation. And they talk about double taxation. Double taxation just means that the money gets taxed once at the corporate level and then again at the individual level. So anyway, we've talked about a lot about investing in real estate. I want to thank you very much. And the next time we come back, we'll be talking again about something called sales of businesses. Thank you very much for coming.